listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast today is Linda Nemec Foster, a poet, and I'm so excited to talk to her because she has so many great stories and so many really powerful stories. Now, Linda Nemec Foster has written several collections of poetry, including Amber Necklace from Gdansk, Listen to the Landscape, 10 Songs from Bulgaria, The Lake Michigan Mermaid, which came out on Wayne State University Press and was a Michigan notable book. And now on New Issues Press coming out this month, her latest is The Blue Divide. Linda was born in Cleveland, and as we'll talk about here, all four of her grandparents were immigrants from southern Poland. That is something that has played an important role in a number of her works, particularly in Amber Necklace from Gdansk. She's won numerous honors for her poetry, including the International Creative Arts Award from Polish American Historical Association, finalist for the Michigan Governor's Artist Award, a book award nomination from the Academy of American Poets, and numerous nominations for the Pushcart Prize from Poets, Writers, and Editors. In the late 90s, she co-founded with her husband Tony the Contemporary Writers Series at Aquinas College, her alma mater in Grand Rapids, and it's gone on to become one of the most successful reading series in the country, featuring such acclaimed poets and writers as Seamus Haney, Pete Carey, Joy Harjo, Thomas Lynch, Scott Turo, and many, many, many more. So we're talking about her latest collection, The Blue Divide, with poems that explore the history of conflict and resilience, paying close attention to not only what divides us, but also to what can heal and redeem our common journey. It's a beautiful collection of poetry, and I'm very excited to talk with Linda Nemec Foster. Let's say Blue Divide was potentially, someone picks this book up and it's their first time reading you. And yeah. a couple of things they're going to encounter, you are going to take them to Poland. You're going to... Yes. You're going to reference war. You're going to reference right. rather intense imagery and even yes. and even and even violent exchanges. Mm-hmm. And I wanted mm-hmm. to talk about how that sort of that is very much tied into your your lineage and has right. has been kind of something you've returned to in yes. previous books. The Blue Divide, I think, is a compilation of a number of themes going on in my work. Not only the theme of the landscape of the world which has the good, the bad, and the ugly, let's face it, but also, the, uh, as one of the editorial descriptions said, the landscape of the heart, which also has the good, the bad, and the ugly going on. And the older I get, and I know I'm a lot older than you, Jeff, let's face it, the older I get, the more I realize that all of that is necessary to live a life. You can't deny it. You can't sugarcoat it. Mm-hmm. I know uh, some people, you know, who do, and if that's the way they walk in the world, fine for them. But that's never been the way I have walked in the world. That's mm-hmm. never been my journey. Mm-hmm. So when I look at, let's face it, the stark brutality of some of the wars on the other side of the world, and you mentioned Poland. Uh, all four of my grandparents came from Southern Poland. 
the mountains south of Krakow, the mountains that divide Poland from the Czech Republic and Poland from Slovakia, if you know that vaguely that map of the world, that's where they're from. And they live through some brutal, horrific times. And I often wonder if I wasn't born in this country and keep in mind my mother's parents and my father's parents came to America before World War One, before the awful stuff that happened, a lot of awful stuff happened in Poland for centuries before that, but not like what happened between 1939 and 1945 mm-hmm. when they were brutalized during that, that war. And a lot of Americans think World War II began with Pearl Harbor. No, it began September 1, 1939, when Hitler invaded Poland, and then he didn't waste a lot of time Mm-mm. in putting down the boot. So I cannot deny that part of my DNA, my family history. I have stories of tremendous courage. Mm-hmm. My grandmother's village, I like I said, all four of my grandparents were born in Poland. I know more my father's parents because they lived long lives my mother's parents died very young she was only 10 when her father died in america because both of my parents were born in america and only 15 when her mother died so i didn't know them i just know these stories these myths about them but with my father's side of the family that's who i know i've been to poland nine times that's who i see Mm -hmm. there's they're still there Uh, a lot of cousins second cousins third cousins a few aunts and uncles around not too many but that's who i know and one time we were there i think the second time we were there in 2000 just by pure accident i found out that my grandmother's village father's mother's village saved the life of a jewish doctor in their village I had no clue. And how I found out this by pure randomness, I was talking to one of my cousins who happens to be a priest, Father Joseph, and I just asked a simple question like, what happened during the war? You know, here we are in this little village in southern Poland. It's not a major hub. Mm-hmm. It's not Warsaw or Gdansk. It's this little village. I said, I'm sure you, you didn't have problems. I'm sure the SS wasn't here or the uh, Gestapo. He says, oh, 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 no, they were everywhere. They were under every rock. They were behind every tree. And what I found out that that part of Poland near the mountains, it was like an underground railroad for the resistance. They would get people out of the country through those mountains where this village was in the foothills of the mountains. And he was telling me, he says, oh, as a matter of fact, two of my cousins, they were teenagers. We're talking about mm, maybe 14, 17 years old. They were caught by the Gestapo, you know, outside the village. I said, do tell, I never heard the story. And they were arrested and they wanted, the Gestapo wanted them to be informants. So they brought them in. They said, we want to know who belongs in this village mm-hmm. and who's a stranger, who doesn't belong here. You know, they, they were looking for uh, Jewish refugees that, that, that were hiding. And they tortured these two young boys. They didn't say a word. They didn't give up because they knew the whole village would be gone. So they, they didn't say a word. They escaped. They, well, one escaped without any problem. The other one was shot three times as he was escaping. One bullet uh, grazed his belt. Another bullet grazed the side of his head, Just went, but it was a flesh room, went, went out of his um, body right by the jaw. And the other one uh, lodged in the back of his knee, which was the worst wound. So he couldn't run. He played dead. 
they left him there. He crawled back to the village. And then my cousin said, and do you know who nursed him back to health? The Jewish doctor from Krakow that we were hiding in our cellar. And I and I asked him to repeat the story three times because I had never heard it. My father had never heard it. When I told my father, he said, what? And it was such a horrific time for that village that maybe there was kind of like amnesia survival in order to just move on after the war. But what happened when this young boy came back to the village, now the village had two people to hide. Not only the doctor, but this boy that was that ran away from the Gestapo. So both of them, uh, they had to move them. You know, every now and then they had to move them to another hut. You know, a, as uh, time went on, and I found out that they both survived the war. Both the the young boy and the doctor survived the war. And what was interesting when this young boy was being hidden along with the doctor, he pled. I mean, he pleaded to have the doctor just let him die. He said, you know, I I just don't want to go on. Please just let me die. And the doctor told him, your whole village is keeping me alive. The best, the, the least I could do is to keep you alive and we'll survive together. And that's what happened. Wow. Uh, at the end of the war, the Jewish doctor was able to leave Europe. And I don't know if he originally emigrated to the United States or to Israel, but he did survive. And that young boy survived too. He lived a long life by a long life. I think he was in his late 70s or early 80s when he died, but he was never the same psychologically and emotionally. He never married. He never had a family. Uh, He kind of kept to himself. He became a recluse. So physically he was healed, Mm -hmm. but emotionally he he was damaged. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those stories, Mm -hmm. you just can't say, uh, oh, well, you know, let, let, let's forget. Let's put them in a jar and bury them or put them, you know, in a closet somewhere. Right. So that is just part of who I am. And that comes out in my work. And what was interesting about sequencing these poems, because I always talk about there's the art of the poem, there's the art of the poem of the book. Because mm-hmm. I look at a book of poetry Uh, And I can't speak for other genres like short stories or short fiction. I look at putting together a book of poetry. It is like writing a whole new poem. How are you going to begin it? How are you going to end it? And then the middle. And um, I did not realize this as I was doing. I I did in my heart. I just didn't know it up here. But uh, the, the, the book flows from this international public violence and heartache and then it travels to the dissonance of a family Mm -hmm. so it goes from the macrocosm to the microcosm and my editors really like that because they said usually in books it's the opposite Mm -hmm. you get the 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 small picture and then you get the big picture but i reversed it Mm -hmm. in the sequencing of the poem so uh thanks for that that question because yeah uh that's a good way to explain who I am mm-hmm. and where I came from to the general audience. I think it, it's telling that you held that anecdote that you even just shared with us as such a sacred story. I can tell that you appreciate stories and I don't, I'm not trying to make a blanket general statement about poetry, but, and I'll just, I'll, I'll put myself on the table and say, this is my own misconception that when I think of the craft of poetry, I often think that it is, it can tend to be a little insular, it can tend to be almost memoir-esque, it can tend to be 
uh, that Walt Whitman style of mm -hmm. I, 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 me, I was in the field, I saw a tree, etc., etc. You write very often in the third person, and you, but but you still keep it intimate. You yeah. and you tell stories in the third person, and it uh, feels as though you are putting us right over the shoulder of a character in your poem. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I and I love how you're able to do that. And you 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 have a lot of history and a lot of stories in your poems. It isn't necessarily. You know, Linda, Linda, Linda. It's very global, very big right. picture. It's, it's then, still, it's the world. It's the right, world. Right. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. and you know, that's that's Poland, that's Bulgaria. It's it's uh -huh. and it's, yeah. And as a matter of fact, uh, here is the very short memory that people have, and not just in America. Well, especially in America, but in other parts of the world, they know their history and they hold on to it. But genocide never stops, unfortunately. And, and that is the big stain of humanity is just doing junk. I want to watch my language over and over and over again. It's right now happening in Syria. It's happening in Yemen. And maybe we don't want to know about it, but it is still there. It's there in some countries of Africa as we speak. And what people don't realize that um, after World War II, the biggest genocidal tragedy was in the Balkans, mm -hmm. Croatia, Bosnia, you know, Kosovo. And that was only a little over 20 years ago. Right. It wasn't that long ago, but people have like forgot. It's like uh, out of human memory now. And uh, so I address that, even though uh, my family wasn't involved in those countries, I know that grief and sorrow because of what my family went through in, in Poland. And keep in mind, I also have a great aunt who is Jewish that a lot of people don't know. She married into the family, but she was Jewish. And she left Poland before the Shoah, before World War II. She left around the same time before World War I, like 1910, 1912. That's when my family came to America. And her name was Rose, Aunt Rose, and she lost everybody in in Poland except you know coming over with her her husband who she fell in love with mm -hmm. her Catholic husband they came over but she lost everyone and she also had tragedy in America too in her new family with her children so it's like um how do these people keep on that yeah. is also to me the miracle and the question is what can we learn from these people who've gone through so much and they put one foot in front of the other every day when they get out of bed. And uh, like my Aunt Rose, you would have never known the tragedy in her family. She was always loving and kind and happy. She was my mother's aunt. And my when my mother was orphaned at 15 with her other three siblings, Aunt Rose was the angel. Aunt Rose made sure that they were okay and had food and all that other stuff. So um, yes. that's another story. I think your poems are beautiful specifically because of this, even though there might be ugliness depicted, referring to wars, referring to all these sort of violent acts and all these tragedies. But what what's beautiful about your poems is that you are celebrating the resolve of all of those people, whether it is your family or who you were related to, but anyone out there who was tough as nails enough to walk out and through a country with bombs falling all around them, keeping their family safe, keeping their mental health together. We build all these statues to generals and etc. but you take us into the lives of those people who were actually 
if they weren't if they weren't killed and if they were lucky enough to survive, you take us in the lives of the people who were touched and yeah. dramatized by all these right. things. Celebrate how they keep on. They keep on. You know what I mean? That's beautiful. And that is a miracle. That is yeah. a gift. And so uh, I remember, you know, when I heard this story from my cousin uh, Joseph, who was talking about this Jewish doctor from Krakow, that the whole village, the whole village kept one person alive and they had to, they all had to be in. Because with the with the Germans in Poland, if and this didn't happen in France or Italy, but in Poland, if anyone was found helping a Jew, the whole family, the whole village was decimated. They just didn't care. It's like mm-hmm. you're out, mm-hmm. you're out too. Mm-hmm. And so the whole village had to be in. Yeah, they had to be all in because if like those two young boys, if anyone said a word, the the whole village would go. So. I was asking a good friend of mine who is Jewish, who has since died, uh, an American here, uh, actually lived in Detroit. And I told her, I said, oh, brother, you know, when I hear these stories about about my family, what would I have done Mm -hmm. if I would have still been living there? I mean, I don't know if I would have had that courage. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I would have been able to be in that moment in history and said, I am going to risk right. being killed or tortured yeah. for this uh, young doctor from Krakow that I've never met before. Yeah, I'll take him in, feed him, keep him, keep him in my cellar. I don't know what I would do. It's so and impulsive. This Jewish, and this Jewish friend told me, she said, oh, Linda, I bet you would because that's your blood. Yes. That's your DNA. And yeah. so that that was like one of the biggest gifts anyone ever gave me. Yeah. In, in so far as a, as a, a compliment. So... Yeah, I will. You are also capturing the the tenderness that can that can spark the tenderness that can exist if if at all possible between harsh intensities. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite poems in the Blue Divide is called Fire and Ice. It's a shorter poem. Ah, yes, and yes. If, if uh, I have would this you line, like me? Would I'd you love like to. me to read that? I'd love to because it, yeah. Right. Rather than because me quote this, a line from this poem, this is a fire and ice. Mm-hmm. This must be an earlier version. So um, I am hoping that I remember the, the final version of this. Okay. Fire and ice. In a crowded bar on the other side of the world, a stranger leans into her blue scarf and whispers, blue is something of an ecstatic accident created by fire and ice. The flamenco dancer in front of them, her intense torso lighting the small stage with the fire so real they could feel it on their skin. Waves of red and gold as sunset flaming from her arms and arched back. No ice blue dawn but dusk of the lost hours between silence and word, his open mouth, the space between them evaporating in the heat of what happened next. That line, an ecstatic accident. Yeah. Uh, between. Ecstatic, and yeah. So I don't know. I'd like, so that, and maybe you could talk about this because I yes. know, I know that the color blue comes up in a lot of poems and a lot of colors in general. I know there is right. another poem called blue, but right. when you gave me that line, I was like, I wonder if that is part of the blue divide that, that, that existence between fire and ice is mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, actually, uh, the title, The Blue Divide, is, I, I think, a perfect title. That wasn't the original title. 
Jeff. The original title was, uh, long story short, then I'll get back to your question, uh, Pictures of the Floating World, which is the title of another poem in the collection. And when New Issues Press accepted it as an editor's choice for publication, I was so delighted. Uh, But the editor, Nancy Eimer, said, you know, I like the title of Pictures of the Floating World, but, you know, there are two other poets who've used that title before for books, including Amy Lowell, soon after she won the Pulitzer Prize in 1920 or 21. And I thought, oh, we, we don't want that. So that's when we went through the uh, uh, manuscript again. And I came up with the Blue Divide. She loved it. I loved it. But um, the whole idea of the dichotomy in life, what happens and also what doesn't happen is really important too. And what I love about the whole genre of poetry and, you know, I have written uh, flash fiction, prose poetry, microfiction, and I love that. But what I love about poems is what also what is not said, that blankness on the page, that silence, so to speak, the silence of the page is just as important as those words that are on that page. Mm-hmm. So when we go back to Fire and Ice yeah. and you go back to that question of the ecstatic accident and in life, uh, you know, someone would, would say there's no randomness in the universe. There's no randomness in the universe. But, um, well, I will say, okay, there may be no randomness, but there's a lot of things that happen that you don't know where it's coming from and why. And this particular poem was inspired by being in Spain, in Sevilla, Seville, Sevilla, in Spain, And I was there with a friend. Uh, She had just lost her husband a year before. I decided to take her on this journey to Spain. Actually, it was a spiritual pilgrimage that was uh, uh, organized by Carmelite fathers, believe it or not. And we ended up in this very, very seductive, erotic flamenco bar. But we were there for two weeks to study the writings and poetry of Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, uh, two mighty figures in um, in mysticism. And I took my friend Therese with me, uh, who had just recently lost her husband. And we were at this flamenco bar and she just could not believe the passion in that room. And if you're and we're not talking, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not saying anything naughty here. We're not talking a strip bar in Flint. We're talking, you know, a a very respected, artistic flamenco bar where everyone keeps their clothes on. But the passion was so unbelievable, like (laughs) nothing like it in the world, let me tell you. And we were sitting there. And my friend said, you know, holy cow, I I don't think I could contain myself. And it was just that kind of uh, passion and emotion that we experienced with not only uh, what was happening on stage with these remarkable artistic dancers, but what was happening in the audience. I mean, it was palpable. You could, and it's not that no one was, you know, screwing on the floor or anything like that. It was just what was in the air, what yeah. was there that you could you could feel. And what was the, the best was this wonderful flamenco dancer. She was a woman. She had a long green dress with frills on the bottom, green dress with white polka dots. She had to be in her 70s. She was so elegant with these magnificent arms, you know, thin, uh, beautiful. 
and you would have never known how old she was because in that room she was ageless and this is what the poem is about just all of that i wanted to move on to something else that i think is important to mention uh obviously the blue divide I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful book, beautiful collection of poetry. I just want to talk a little bit more about you and just how much you love other artists. I think it's worth saying. I mean, oh. first of all, first of all, we we should mention how great it is to have started the Contemporary Writer Series uh, over on the West Side. But yeah, you, uh-huh. you, you know, I I, rec- I uh, referenced uh, Lake Michigan Mermaid, which is a great book, a, a collaboration with Meredith Riddle. And right, Anne-Marie Oman. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you've collaborated with jazz musicians. You're not yeah. just a poet. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, Jeff and the audience out there, I've all actually, I had different lo- uh, different career goals when I was younger and poet wasn't one of them. Uh, when I was little, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Some of the poems of the Blue Divide talk about those things. I wanted that so bad. I still get geeked out by science. But when I was in high school, I realized when I was a sophomore, math wasn't in my universe. No pun intended. (laughs) I could not. I I was okay with algebra. I struggled with geometry. I I couldn't get um, calculus or trig. And I realized I don't have the science brain to go. I mean, I don't have the math brain to go into science. The irony is my daughter does have that brain. And she double majored in physics and astronomy in college. But I never got that. I never got that. So that was one thing I wanted to be. The second thing, looking at all the arts, I wanted to be a visual artist. That's why I think I write so many ekphrastic poems. Ekphrastic, of course, is the Greek word stemming from uh, the meaning uh, based or inspired by art, uh, any kind of art, but usually visual art. So, so many of my poems, like the long poem uh, sequence, The Artist's Notebook, is about visual art because I am so in awe of it Mm -hmm. and all kinds of art not just with michelangelo and bernini but uh uh alexander mcqueen you know the the fashion designer and very contemporary art cutting edge art i am just in awe with artists and what they do Mm -hmm. and i can't go beyond stick people so the whole idea of my journey as a writer takes on a a lot of different uh, hats that I wish I could wear Mm -hmm. permanently, but I can't. So that's my, 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 uh, my way of, of kind of um, feeding my dream of being a physicist or an astronomer or a musician or a visual artist. So that's why I've done uh, so many collaborations. I was just trying to look at the, the artist is credited. Oh, oh, you mean the the cover? Of, yeah, of Blue Divide, yeah. Ah, this is a wonderful story. Okay. It was uh, all designed by New Issues Press, which is out of Kalamazoo, Western Michigan University. Mm -hmm. Their art department, their design studio, they're the ones that that do do all of that magic. Um, I may suggest things, you know, there's always the art author's questionnaire that you get um, less than a year before a book is published when they ask you, you know, what kind of covers do you like? Tell us, you know, the, the, the other poetry books whose covers you really admire. And I gave them those suggestions. But I also had a very dear friend who was um, a landscape artist here in West Michigan. His name was Jim Carcina very dear member of our family. He passed 
a little over a year ago, like end of September of 2019, before COVID. And uh, he was a very close friend of of my my husband and me and our children. We knew him for many years. He taught at Aquinas College in the art department. I, I was a student there, but I never had him because I didn't, you know, I could only draw stick people. So I never took any uh, art classes. But uh, we must have at least 12 paintings of his and they're they're all beautiful and one of the last paintings we purchased before he died and he died of dementia he was like in his mid 80s and when we would go to visit him in the dementia uh center of of his nursing home he had this beautiful painting Mm -hmm. above his bed and we knew the gallery here in grand rapids where he's he still um represented la fancy gallery i asked them i said you know I, I know he's failing in his health. We'd love to buy that painting yeah. if no one else has put dibs on it. And actually, it was a personal painting owned by the gallery owners. They loved it so much, but they knew that we were close friends and they sold it to us at a discount. We wow. were really impressed. They, we know you've been a good friend of Jim's. Here you go. Yeah. And that beautiful painting is um, of a landscape lakescape Mm -hmm. of the upper peninsula Mm -hmm. and it's a beach and it's two dunes two cliffs of land and i there was only one image that i gave new issues press as this isn't a book cover but this is a piece of art that i really love and i know because of copyright you can't use this Mm -hmm. but is there any way you can somehow replicate it and that's what they did that's beautiful so if you see the, you know the cover the blue divide now it was done by and i uh oh now the the woman who did that cover design is i, I can't remember her name but uh well i do have took, yeah she she took that image it's at the back bailey mcdaniel uh, yeah yeah there you go and so when uh she looked at that and she in her own artistic way got that design for the front cover and uh i don't know if you you can see this the book isn't out yet uh ladies and gentlemen in our audience you you can't see it yet but uh it wraps around those cliffs and the divide wrap around to the back cover uh, Mm -hmm. of the book and uh, i love that so uh that was a, a wonderful way for them to honor my dear friend jim carcina and to honor his work and to honor our friendship with him and um in the i mentioned the sequence the artist's notebook it's a sequence of seven very modern sonnets and the very last part of that sequence the last a section called gift that's i'm addressing him when i say um you painted this and that's jim carcina uh and he painted this uh lovely landscape painting that he gave my son and his future wife as a gift and that little poem gift is about what he did for them so well you know what i wanted to tell you linda is that there was a word that was coming to me when i was reading a lot of your poems and i as i said I, i had sort of referenced that you like to write from the third person but i also thought that you know given all these sort of moments snapshots in history that you show us and all these different lives and different experiences from all over the world. The word witness came 
into mm. my head, being a witness to something or being an observer or even just being a documentarian um, as a poet, but just a uh, poet as witness is something that, that really struck me. Yes. And, uh, you know, I just thought that was, was very beautiful. I think it, it, it seems intentional. Yeah, uh, it, it, it is, I think, intentional from, from my heart, from my head, from my spirit. And I am really honored when you say that because um, here are my heroes of poetry. You uh, and uh, a lot of them are, you know, European or Eastern European. But you know, Liesel Mueller, who was born in Hamburg, Germany, I've dedicated the book to her. The Blue Divide is dedicated to Liesel Mueller. She was born in Hamburg, uh, left Germany in July of 1939. She was a young teenager right before the war broke out, and she, her poetry witnesses that not only witnesses the trauma of her homeland and what happened to it under Hitler, but her life in the uh, Middle West. And she won the Pulitzer Prize for her book Alive Together Mm -hmm. in 1996. And I look at her as as a true witness in her work. Denise Levertov Mm -hmm. is another hero of mine in in her poetry of of witness. And then um, I even think of Rainer Maria Rilke, uh, who I did my master's thesis on. Um, He is so so much a witness of the heart and the soul that I really admire. And then my my heroes of uh, Polish poetry, Czesław Miłosz, Tadeusz Rosiewicz, Zbigniew Herbert, Wisława Zimborska, those are these these amazing heroes and heroines who witness so much, yet put it in their life, Mm -hmm. put it in their work, and um, I'm always humbled when I read them, and they are my guiding lights. All these names I mentioned. I could mention dozens more, but those are the ones. Naomi Shiab Nye is another witness of the heart. Uh, Linda Hogan, uh, Joy Harjo, I could go on and on, but uh, um, I'm blessed to have read these people. And a lot of them I've met. Mm-hmm. Cheslov Miwash I met in Krakow the, the year before he died, and I couldn't believe it. He took my hand Jeff, and he kissed it. Oh, boy. Just loved me. I didn't wash my hand for a, for a <laughs> month, I think. But um, also Seamus Heaney yeah. is a, a poetry, a poet of witness who I admire. I met him, too, because he read for the Contemporary Writers Series at Aquinas College in 06, a few years before he died. So I've just been really fortunate and blessed to have people, these poets, these witnesses, witness for me in my life and my work. Yeah. And so I am uh, so honored that you you, uh, you said that word oh, in yeah. relationship to me and my work. Thank you. Well, thank you. Also, I wanted to thank for the opportunity to hear you read a poem, which was great. Uh, we do have time for one more if you'd like to. Okay. If you have one over do you, there. Do you, uh, how, is there any poem that you'd like me to read, Jeff? I had one in mind, and it sort of segues us from being a witness or an observer, even if it isn't directly related. So, But it, I do feel like this one ends with a nice punch to close out our episode. It's called, uh, help me with the title, I believe it's called Everything We Can't Name, What We Can't Name. Oh, All That We Cannot Name. All That We Cannot Name. Is that, uh, does that sound about right? Yeah. All right. Hold on a second. I'm so glad you're asking me to read this yeah. because um, it doesn't have uh, a dedication, 
but it's about the woman who was with me in Spain. Oh, perfect. When we had the, um, anyway, this is called All That We Cannot Name. And it's another example of ekphrastic poetry because it's based on a photograph that my friend Therese um, did. She was a wonderful photograph and a wonderful poet. And she presented this great photograph matted and framed to me, which I have hanging in one of our rooms upstairs. So I'll end with this. It's called All That We Cannot Name. Your eye sees one thing. The camera imagines another. Shape disappears into weightless blue. Light becomes a shadow's mirror. Image floats to the surface like a language you've never heard. Fluid lines of exotic characters. As if an ancient riddle poses a question in the momentary stillness of the camera's held breath, and you know it will take your whole life to learn the answer. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much. And that was Linda Nemec Foster talking about The Blue Divide, her latest collection of poetry out on New Issues Press. We'll have more links in the show notes to find information about that local publisher and this great local poet. We're very glad to have her on the podcast. This is A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library, and I'm Jeff Milo. The music that brings us in and out of this podcast is by local musician Chad Stocker. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it to social media or tell a friend. If you've been listening to us for a while already, remember to rate, review, or subscribe. Thanks for listening.